Well, in the present day, the rapture really gets a really bad rap. And we can see that from outside of the church, and we can see that within the church. Relative to outside of the church, we're talking about our modern culture. And our modern culture has sensationalized, it has in a sense trivialized, and thereby subject this doctrine of the rapture to ridicule. There are so many movies and films about the rapture. You could go back early on with the film like The Thief in the Night and watch that. And and it goes on and on and on. And there are skits about the rapture people do in church. And then there are books or even a series of books like Left Behind that then get turned into movies. And there are even pranks people pull about the rapture. You know, there's a famous story of people in a dorm and a kid is asleep and everyone takes everything out of the dorm and runs out and then they get somebody from the band to blow a trumpet and scare the person in the dorm because he feels like he was left behind. There's a lot of things that go on in modern culture about the rapture. And it is all so dramatic and there are fictional elements added and You have to do that to make a story. We understand that. But because these things have taken place, the doctrine itself seems like fiction. When you treat something like fiction, even if it's the truth, it it then has the semblance of fiction. And so by focusing on it, you could put it this way. Holly Weird has made this doctrine very weird. And it's ridiculed. Why would anyone want to believe something that Hollywood believes? And unfortunately, Christians today sometimes base their understanding of the rapture more on television than on truth. And that is a problem. That is a problem. And that brings us from the ridicule and scorn that happens to the rapture, how it gets a bad rap outside of the church, to how it gets a bad rap inside the church. Inside the church. You see, inside the church, I think if sometimes we talk to our fellow believers about this, for them it's a laughable doctrine. It's a laughable doctrine because of all the hype that is associated with it, because of all the ideology and the fiction and the sensationalization with it. It's a laughable doctrine, and particularly it's a laughable doctrine because it lacks, in people's mind, scriptural support. They say, where do you see this in the Bible? And when you point to them, they say, well, it's only a few passages in the Bible that talk about it. It must be very obscure, and furthermore, those passages are all subject to debate, And so inside the church, people think this is a laughable doctrine. People think that this lacks scriptural support. And they mock this doctrine or they are skeptical about this doctrine because they view it as a late doctrine. They view it as a late doctrine. What you might often hear people say is, well, people didn't think about the rapture until like the last 100, 150 years. So if it's late, it probably isn't true. That is their logic behind it. In fact, one time I heard a famous theologian talking about the doctrine of the rapture, and he was critiquing it, and he said that he asked another person, why do you believe in a pre-tribulational rapture? And the person, according to him, replied, well, thats I don't know where in the Bible that is. I just was taught that that's what it is, and that's it. And that is people's perception about the rapture. It is laughable, it lacks scriptural support, and it's a late idea. And so in light of this, People wonder why anyone would want to believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. And because of the embarrassment that has been put upon it and the shame and uncertainty of it, sometimes we feel like we, we just can't and shouldn't talk about it. We can't talk about it at least with any confidence because can we really know? And again, 
this comes from the fact that our culture has fictionalized it. It seems untenable theologically. And ultimately, what people are wondering is, what is the point of this doctrine? Is it just that we get out of trouble? That's it? Which I like, but is that the best reason to believe in something? Just because it makes us feel better. That's a legitimate question. And so in light of this, what I'd like to do today at this time is to provide you certainty and confidence that this doctrine of the rapture, it isn't an obscure doctrine. It isn't an indefensible doctrine. It isn't a doctrine without scriptural support. And furthermore, this is not just about winning an argument or having a nice chart. Rather, we can have certainty. We can have confidence because this doctrine is found in Scripture. In fact, when you look at the data from the right perspective, it's found in quite a few passages. The percentage is very high when you actually think about it, and even more than the fact that we can understand and discern this doctrine, this doctrine has a purpose. This doctrine has a point. There is no such thing as a pointless doctrine of Scripture. There was a reason why God revealed it in the first place, and it was for his glory and for the glory of his Son and for the edification, the building up of the saints. That's why he reveals it in the first place. And so what I want to do is I want to walk you through the proof of this doctrine as well as its practicality the proof of this doctrine, as well as its practicality. And that way, we're going to have to walk through this doctrine, in a sense, two times. One, to prove it. The second, to show how it's practical. And that is all to give you certainty and confidence that there is clarity in Scripture about this. And there is a purpose to this in Scripture. In fact, it gives hope and showcases God's wisdom and glory. What I want to show is through the proof and practicality of this doctrine that you see the biblical writers themselves, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, they understood what was going on. They knew how to articulate it distinctively. And so we should have the same clarity they have about this doctrine. And that is going to produce great joy, great glory to God, great worship to him And that's what we want. So before we get into the proof and practicality, there is some context we need. I guess you could say with with the letter P, we need some preparation. So there's three Ps in this message. Preparation, proof, and practicality. And within preparation, we, we need a framework of thinking. We need to both resolve certain misconceptions that people have raised against this doctrine, as well as to give us the right frame of mind, the right mindset and context, so that we approach this doctrine correctly. And all of that, all of that resolution and all of that preparation of the right frame of mind revolves and centers on one idea, and that is precision. That is precision. If we're talking about preparation, there's one word we need to keep in mind, and that is this, precision. Because this doctrine is about details. You cannot be sloppy. You have to pay close attention. Every word counts. Every detail matters. You can't just say, well, I think it kind of means something like this. No, 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 no kind ofs. You have to be precise. Otherwise, you won't understand what is going on. We have to think carefully. Now, you might say, well, this is true for every doctrine. This is true for every passage of Scripture. Amen. But here, we have to be extra deliberate. 
we have to be extra deliberate because of certain factors. And again, these certain factors will help us to know how we can resolve certain misconceptions and put us in the right frame of mind, setting up for the main discussion, the proof and practicality. Well, what are those factors that should make us extra deliberate? Let me give you one right now, and it's called progressive revelation. Progressive revelation. You say, what is the definition of progressive revelation? Well, it is that God reveals and discloses and explains his truth step by step, and not all at once. As the perfect teacher, God has built for us an entire educational curriculum from Genesis to Revelation to guide us into all the truth that he desires to know. And this is both relative to the breadth of topics discussed as well as the depth of details that are part of that. And here's just a simple proof of that. We have a Bible. It's 66 books written over a long period of time, ultimately by one author, God himself. Well, why did he do that? Because there is progressive revelation. He did not just say, well, everything you need to know, you learn in kindergarten, Genesis, you're done, and that's it. No, there were 65 other books he added on top of that so that we would understand his truth. And we could show some simple examples of this. The Old Testament talks about the Messiah, anticipates him, but you don't learn his name until the New Testament. His name is Jesus. The Old Testament gives prophecies about the Messiah. You don't see how exactly they will be fulfilled, at least in Christ's first advent, until the New Testament. The church is not mentioned in the Old Testament, but it is mentioned in the New Testament. And no one says about any of these doctrines, well, I don't really know if if the Messiah's name is Jesus, because it's only mentioned in the last third of the Bible. So uh, that's kind of shaky ground. Two-thirds doesn't affirm Jesus is his name. So maybe we should just kind of put that, on the, put that idea on the shelf. No one says, well, you know, when it talks about the fulfillment of these prophecies, it's only actually a couple of verses that affirm that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. So maybe he wasn't. Because there's only a couple. There's only four or five. So therefore, it can't be true. No one says that. No one says, well, I don't actually believe the church exists because it was only discussed post-Matthew 16 and following. I mean, that's just not a lot of text to work with, folks. So therefore, it must not be true. No one says this. Our logic is simply this. If the Bible says it, the Bible is authoritative, that settles it. And furthermore, there are reasons for why something is revealed later on. Now, apply this same logic to the rapture. People say sometimes, well, there's not that many passages that talk about the rapture. They're, they're, it just seems to come so late in the game, so to speak, they're in a very limited window of the New Testament. Therefore, it must be obscure. Therefore, it must not be applicable. Therefore, it must not be true. Well, wait a minute. What was our logic with everything else? Our logic was, if the Bible says it, if the Bible articulates it, it is the truth and that there are reasons for why something might be revealed later on, like the name Jesus, like the church, like the fulfillment of certain prophecies. There's a reason for it. And in light of that, think of it this way, and it's all about statistics, and I think we're very familiar with statistics in light of our current situation. But 
out of all of the passages where it would be appropriate to talk about the rapture, because we're talking about the topic of eschatology, and out of all the passages within that where it is actually possible to talk about the rapture, because progressive revelation has reached a stage where it makes sense to talk about it, out of all of the passages which talk about eschatology, and where you have, as we'll talk about later, the presence of the church, so that you can actually rapture that church, out of all of those passages... Actually, the rapture occurs a lot of times. Out of all of the possible times where the biblical writers could and were able to talk about the rapture, they did. They did. That's what we're going to discover. But if you stop and think about it, you think, well, yeah, you have it in 1 Thessalonians, you have it in 1 Corinthians, you have it in Revelation. Are those not the major passages of the New Testament which discuss eschatology after the church has been inaugurated? Yes. Which means this then, if you're actually looking at the statistics, it's very high amount that the biblical writers talk about the rapture. They punctuate it, they highlight it whenever they can. Whenever they can. This is not just some obscure doctrine from that perspective. Now, having said that, This is about preparation, and everything within preparation is about precision. We understand that. Why do we need precision in light of everything I've just discussed about progressive revelation? Well, it's simple. Even though I've tried to show you and highlight and qualify and explain, yeah, even though there are limited passages that talk about the rapture, that shouldn't make us think that it's just some obscure, unthinkable, absolutely uh, unreasonable doctrine. Rather, It is reasonable, given the scope of progressive revelation. But even still, it then is still limited. And they've still, we got a limited amount of text to work with, which means that the biblical writers have a tight window to reveal these things in. And if they're saying it in a tight window, we've got to be extra, extra diligent to listen to exactly what they said. Because they can't say it over a long period of time. They've got to say it in a compressed fashion. And so everything that they say really counts. They say a lot in a little. They say a lot in a little, and so we must be able to discern it. And at the same time, here's what we also have to understand. The reason progressive revelation exists is so that you learn certain things that build up to other things. So if you haven't learned all that has led up and built up to the rapture, what makes you think you're really going to understand all that's going on there? The reason they can say a lot in a little is they have assumed you have already gone through all the other material that would lead up to this specific discussion. And when you know that, you will understand the rapture with greater clarity. And so we need to make sure we have precision both in the details of the text that there are there, but also precision in all of progressive revelation that has led up to that text. This requires a careful eye for detail. This requires us to really understand our Bibles well. So, progressive revelation. We need to have that framework. It helps qualify certain um, objections against the rapture, but at the same time says we need to be precise. Well, there's another factor in this as well. There's another factor in this as well. It's not just progressive revelation that we need to think about as we think about the preparation for this topic. It is also the subject of church history. It is also the subject of church history. Now, I 
can't, and I don't have the time to be able to go into this in depth, but I would like to help us understand some issues, especially since people say, oh, well, isn't the rapture in the scope of church history? It just came lately. It must be made up. It must be fabricated because somebody just discovered it in the last hundred years. Well, just like with progressive revelation, that God is progressively revealing things, in the church and in the history of the church, we have to recognize this, that the church at different periods of time gained depth and precision and articulateness and defense for certain doctrinal ideas. Now, to be clear, everything has already been revealed. It is revealed in the word of God, period. All truth is there in its depth and in its breadth. But just like you and I, we don't know everything when, we come, when it comes to Scripture. We would say, yeah, it's all here, and I know about one verse of it. In the same way, we have to know that the church in its history hasn't mastered all of the truth in all of its breadth and depth. There were periods of time in church history where, because of certain pressures and circumstances brought about by God's providence, certain ideas were plowed further in and deepened and refined. Let me give you some examples. In the early church, the doctrine of the Lord Jesus Christ, Christology, was heavily refined. Not because it wasn't revealed before. No, if you read those creeds, they're all coming from the scripture. But because there were cults, so to speak, there were sects that opposed Christ and opposed who he was, that put pressure and that forced the church to go deeper into the scriptures to defend and articulate, communicate and convey and codify exactly what the scripture said. Sometimes you just need a push and God gives us that push sometimes in our circumstances. Likewise, with soteriology, the doctrine of salvation, it wasn't that people never understood the gospel from, say, the New Testament period to the Reformation, but in the Reformation, God provided opportunity to push us to say, we're going to define this more deeply. We're going to define this more precisely. Contrast with the Roman Catholic Church. Again, in all of these situations, the logic is not, well, they just never figured it out. There was no such thing as this doctrine up until that time. No, it is, all truth has already been revealed. People even believe the truth. But to clarify it, to go deep into it, to defend it, to articulate it, to know it and master it. There are certain points in church history where that took place, where that took place. And for a lot of different reasons, for a lot of different reasons, eschatology, just like the early church talked about Christology, just like in the Reformation period, we talked about eschatology wasn't highlighted in the same way until the last 100 to 200 years. And again, the logic is not, well, I guess people just never knew about this or this must have been made up. No, we don't say people didn't know who Jesus Christ was prior to the early church. We don't say people didn't understand the gospel prior to the Reformation and therefore no one was saved. And in the same way, we do not say that, oh, well, the rapture was codified and clarified and refined and articulated in a more sophisticated fashion in the last 200 years. Well, that just means we made it up at that time. No, no, it's always been there. It's just that we have opportunity now to discuss it with greater depth and clarity. And in fact, if you look at the early church and their doctrinal positions And throughout church history, you can observe what we might call the seeds of the rapture. 
seeds of the rapture during that period of time. There are some foundational thoughts, and, and let me just give a kind of simplistic model here. On one hand, people in the early church believed that there would be a time of intense persecution, a tribulation in that regard, an intense, intense time. And on the other hand, they believed that Jesus would take them home, would rapture them, would come. Now think about this. If you have a period of intense persecution that comes before Jesus comes, and at the same time, Jesus can come at any time, those two things don't exactly mesh together. You either can have the period of suffering at any time leading up to Jesus' coming, but you cannot have, well, there's going to be a period of time before Jesus comes where there's going to be intense tribulation, but Jesus can come at any time. Don't square up unless already you can start to see the wheels turning. They happen at the same time. And that already begins to put in seedbed form. It's not full, but it's a tension that people observed in the scriptures, and we're going to observe it ourselves, that, well, how does this actually reconcile? We need to think about this more. And in the most recent days, I guess you could put it that way, people have. Yes, this isn't concrete, this isn't, but it shows there were already consistency across church history leading to this point. But in any case, what we have been talking about is preparation. And what we have been focusing on is the need for precision. And we saw that with progressive revelation, and now we're talking about church history. And again, we need precision. And you say, why? Why does all this discussion talk demand precision? Well, it's simple. Because we haven't done as much work on this as in other areas. You might say, well, there's a lot of books on eschatology. Not as many as on Christology and on soteriology, for example. People have done far more research, far more depth into those areas. And there is far greater articulation of it and far greater discussion of it, of those topics, because of the length of time that they've happened over than this time. And that should make us extra cautious because we don't always have as much to fall back on when it comes to this kind of issue. There is not as much literature to rely upon as before. So let me sum up this whole issue of preparation as such. We need precision. Why? Because what we've learned about progressive revelation is this. There are passages that talk about the rapture. They're limited, and they're limited for good reason, but they're so we need to understand that they're going to say a lot and a little. We need precision. We also need precision because the, the discussion of these subjects has emerged recently, and that's not necessarily a bad or disqualifying thing, but it is the way it is, so we need to really be precise and focused as we go through these things. Again, none of these factors disqualify the doctrine at all, any more than any other thing that I said and listed as an example would be disqualified. It's very real, but it should make us deliberate about being precise. We need to know the details. We need to know the full context. We need to be extra careful because this hasn't been refined in our vocabulary as a church as well as other doctrines have been throughout church history. And it should also make us humble should also make us humble because you're dealing with an issue of precision. You're dealing with details. And I don't know about you, but I myself must confess, and my whole family would confess for me, absent-minded and not good with details. And so we need to realize, sometimes with Scripture, 
we aren't as detailed as we should be. But this doctrine demands detail. And if we're not that good with details, why do we think other people should be as good as we are bad with details? We need to be very cautious here. Furthermore, we should also be humble about this, that these discussions and the scope of church history are relatively new. It's not because it didn't exist. It's just that no one was talking about it. So if people haven't been talking about it to the greatest depth, why do we demand people to know everything that we know or everything that we're learning about when the whole church hasn't been caught up yet in that regard? We need to be patient. We need to be humble. Having said this, all of this puts us in the right frame of mind. We've, in this preparation, we've resolved certain issues, certain objections, but it also should prepare us with the right mindset. And the mindset revolves around what we're looking for and how to look at it. What are we looking for? Well, it's simple. We need to know all progressive revelation, but we also need to focus within that on very specific texts. And how do we look at that? Well, we're going to have to look at the details. We're going to have to get in the nitty-gritty. There's no way around that. And when we do, I think we're going to have some clarity on these issues. And now that moves us from preparation to proof. That moves us from preparation to proof. Well, how to put all of this together? How are we going to go through progressive revelation and look at all the breadth that's going on and setting this up, as well as all these details? How are we going to put all of that together? What we're looking for, how we're looking at it with precision, how are we going to synthesize all that? Well, you might say, that sounds like a nightmare. Three easy steps. That shouldn't be too terrible. Three easy steps. The only thing better than that is no steps, but... but we have to have some steps. So three, it's a biblical number, three easy steps. And here's step number one. Everybody, every Christian believes in a rapture. Everyone, everybody, every Christian really believes in a rapture. That's step number one. And you say, no, they don't. Are you crazy, Chad? I talked to my buddies in the theological nerddom, and they're saying that, no, that's a made-up thing, rapture, no way, I don't believe in that. No, 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 no. Everybody, every Christian, that is, believes in a rapture. And you say, why? Because at the heart of the rapture, and what the rapture is all about, is the resurrection of the saints. Think about this with me. 1 Corinthians 15, it talks about the last trumpet, and we say, oh, rapture! Well, what? It's about the resurrection. It's about how the resurrection is a core part of the gospel, and you can't deny the resurrection. It is about how the dead in Christ will be raised. Speaking of which, 1 Thessalonians 4, we are familiar with this. The trumpet will sound, and the dead in Christ will rise up first. Well, that, you say, that's rapture. That is rapture. But what is the dead in Christ rising? That is, a, that is the resurrection. At the heart of the rapture is the resurrection. And what is that Paul says, if anyone denies the resurrection, and if that is not true, we are the most pitiable amongst all men because we have no hope. The gospel is in vain. All of our work is nothing. So everybody then, everybody then believes in a rapture that's a believer because at the heart of the rapture is the resurrection. You can't just say, well, the rapture's made up. The rapture's made up? No. No one's going to say that. And so everyone believes in a rapture. Step one. And immediately you just feel more at ease. Yeah, this doctrine makes sense because it's about the resurrection. Absolutely. Here's step two. 
it gets a little trickier. Step two is what is the nature of the rapture? Or the nature of the rapture, and namely this, that the rapture cannot be the same thing as the second coming. I know that was a longer sentence, so I'll say it again. The second step is the nature of the rapture, namely, it is not equal to the second coming. It is not equal to the second coming. And you say, how, how are we going to go about this? Well, let me give you a simple analogy. Duck, duck, goose. <laughs> duck, duck, goose. You say, what is duck, duck, goose? I've never heard that before. That's okay. Duck, duck, goose is a children's game played in at least certain countries of this planet where their kids are sitting in, and one child outside of the circle, he is tapping kids on the head, perhaps a little bit too hard, and saying, duck, 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 duck. And then one time he says, goose. And the person he says goose to gets up and they run around the circle and whoever gets to that open position first gets to sit in the other, sit there and the other person gets to be the duck, duck, gooser again. Now, <laughs> why do I bring up duck, duck, goose? Well, it's very simple. The simple principle is this. You have a pattern and then you break a pattern. Duck, 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 goose. And then you know that the pattern is broken. And this is exactly what you have in Scripture. You have a pattern set, and then the pattern is broken. You have duck, 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 goose, and that should get your attention. And you say, well, what is this pattern? What is this pattern, and how does it help us clarify the whole nature of the fact that this is coming? Well, in the Old Testament, in the Old Testament, here's the pattern. When God comes to earth, in what we would call the second coming, It is always very, what we might say, on the ground. It is always, what we might say, very horizontal. In Deuteronomy 4 and in Deuteronomy 30, this is very early on. This is the Pentateuch. God says this, if you are scattered to the ends of the earth, I will gather you back to the place where my name dwells. Well, what is he talking? He's not talking about shooting them up in the sky. He's talking about gathering them from the four corners of the earth and bringing them back ultimately to Jerusalem, where God's name dwells, back to the land of Israel. This is all on the ground. In fact, for this very reason, in the prophets, they affirm this. Isaiah chapter 14, Isaiah chapter 60, it says this, that men will carry Israelites on their shoulders and walk them home. They are not at a carpet ride up in the sky to do that. They're going on the ground to bring them into one place the city of Jerusalem. In Ezekiel 37, the prophecy of the dry bones, God says he will gather his people back together again. And the bones are not shooting up in the air in this vision. They are all going and gathered horizontally along the ground to demonstrate that God will bring his people home along the ground. In Zechariah chapter 6, where this is actually acted out in a sort of a skit form, the exiles from Babylon, a small remnant of them, walk home to Israel. They are not falling from the sky. They are not going via airplane. They are not jumping around. They are going along the ground back home. Everything is on the ground. Everything is on the ground. And we learn two important things from this discussion. And I guess you could say they both start with G. One is this. It's on the ground. It's horizontal. No one's flying anywhere. There's no expectation of flying. No, no, there's no, no in the sky business. No one would ever have that thought in their wildest dreams. Because when you got people carrying you piggyback on your shoulders, you don't think also that you're going to be flying. No one thinks this. It's all on the ground. Second, here's a second G. 
God comes, and then he gathers people. God comes, and then he gathers people. He returns, and then he gathers people. That is the order of how the second coming works. Again, ground, and then God comes, and he gathers people. That's the pattern that we see. In fact, that's the pattern that we see in the New Testament. In the Olivet Discourse, when Jesus is talking about the end times, in the book of Matthew and Mark and Luke, what does he say? The angels will be sent to gather the corners of the earth from one end of heaven to the end, other end of heaven, from one end of earth and sky to the other end of earth and sky. What are we assuming? Exactly what the Old Testament assumed, that this is a horizontal gathering. That this is bringing people along the ground back to the nation of Israel. In fact, Israel is even being talked about in the context. So it makes perfect sense. This is the pattern from Old Testament, and not just Old Testament, but even what? New Testament. This is the pattern. Duck, 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 goose. We're going to have a break-in pattern. We're going to have a break-in pattern, and it's easy to see this break-in pattern because the initial way you can see this break-in pattern is by explicit claim. By explicit claim. <clears throat> In 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says this, I will tell you a mystery. What is a mystery? Something that has not been revealed. Likewise, 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, in talking about the rapture, Paul says, I will tell you by word of the Lord. Word of the Lord. Now, what does the word of the Lord mean? Well, if you look at the Old Testament, even into the New Testament, the word of the Lord is what came to the prophets to give them new revelation. To give them new revelation. In both of those claims, the claim is this. This is new. This is something you have never heard of before. So inherently, immediately from this claim, two things. One is, this is going to be duck, duck, goose. Why? Because... Paul said he's talking about things before, and furthermore, along that line, and on the converse side of it, I guess you could say, is that if you think that 1 Thessalonians 4 and 1 Corinthians 15 is talking about the same thing Matthew talked about, the same thing the Old Testament prophets talked about, Paul says that's not correct. Why? Because he says, I'm talking something that has never been revealed before. And if we're equating it with what has been revealed before, you have violated his explicit claim. His explicit claim. This is going to be something different. And if you miss the claim, it's not hard to figure out when you look at the content of what he is saying. When you look at the content of what he is saying. In fact, the content shows you why he is claiming this has to be new revelation in the first place. 1 Thessalonians 4, 17. You might even be quite familiar with this passage, but if not, mark it down, or you can have your Bible, your phones open there, I guess. Is that the right word to put it? We all know this text well, I believe. The Lord comes down from heaven. We are caught up with him in the clouds. We will meet with the Lord in the air. Do you notice how much Paul, in just a small amount of words, inserts all of these airborne references? All of this stuff about the sky. All of this stuff about going up. Why? Because this is duck, duck, goose. Because this is duck, duck, goose. Everyone who has known about the second coming knows everything should be on the ground. 
There is no expectation we're flying anywhere. That's not even in the remotest part of somebody's mind. And then when Paul says, we're flying. What? That doesn't make any sense. You see, for us as Western Christians who are very familiar with the rapture, this doesn't, this just seems like, well, of course, this is the way it is. But if you're hearing this for the first time, you would have to say, time out. That doesn't, because I've been taught for approximately 43 books of scripture minimum that we don't fly. We don't go up in the air. We're always on the ground. That's the way it works. And Paul says, no, we're flying. We're going up. You see, this is vertical in nature, not horizontal. Furthermore, here's what becomes quite fascinating. If you are already there in 1 Thessalonians 4, turn back one chapter to the end of 1 Thessalonians 3, and here's what says. That the saints, all his saints, all his holy ones, that refers to believers. Paul always uses saints to refer to believers. That we will be with him when he comes. Now, this is interesting. This is interesting. Because here, we have to remember some things. On one hand, we already should remember, wait a minute, Paul has, I mean, the New Testament and the Old Testament has always talked about us being round, being horizontal. And now, Paul, you're saying that we're in the air. And furthermore, now, Paul, your language in 1 Thessalonians 3.13 says that we will all be gathered with Christ when he comes. But the order that it was always in, even Jesus established that order in Matthew 24, is that he comes, God comes, and then we are what? Gathered. But in this case, we're gathered, and then he what? Comes. We're already gathered with him when he comes. How does that work? Well, this is not a contradiction. The Bible does not contradict itself. And furthermore, Paul already told him to the problem, which is, I'm not talking about what you already have heard. I'm talking about something new. That's why we call this a mystery. That's why we say that this is by the word of the Lord. It's brand new. You've never heard this before. And so there is no contradiction because he's not talking about the same thing. He's not talking about the same thing. You could put it this way. When we think about how to link two events together, we often compare what happens, why it happens, who it's happening to, when it's happening, where it's happening. Because if something is happening to the same people in the same place at the same time, most likely it's the same thing. Well, here we have some problems or some solutions to how you think about it. What is happening is different. In the second coming, God comes, the saints are gathered. In the, this situation, it portrays that the saints are already gathered when God comes. How is different because in the second coming, how it's happening is God will gather people along the ground back to Jerusalem. And in the rapture, they're gathered in the air, which brings up a different where things are happening. Because where it's happening, one is on the ground. The other one is in the horizontal. The other one is vertical. And even who it's happening to is different. Throughout the Old Testament, why are people gathered to Israel and Jerusalem? Because they're of the nation of Israel. And in Matthew 24, Jesus has been focusing upon Israel. And he says, let it not happen on the Sabbath. If you're in Jerusalem, you got to get out. You got to go to the hill country. All of that language is focused upon Israel. So even the who involved in the second coming is focused on Israel. But with the rapture, it's a label that is used for the church. So you even have a different who. And that different who, by the way, is very important. We'll talk more about that later. But you could think of it this way. If the what is different, if the how is different, if the where is different, if the who is different, maybe the when is different. 
because they're not the same thing. And, in fact, Paul already said that to begin with. So, so far we've seen this. Everyone believes in a rapture. And the second thing we see is, and the rapture can't be the coming by both explicit claim and by the content of what is happening, they don't sync up. They don't match. And we should have expected that because Paul told us already they were not talking about the same thing. So that brings us to the third question. The first step is, everyone believes in a rapture. Second step is, and it's not the second coming, the third step is this. So when does it happen? When does it happen? All we've established so far is they're not the same thing. So does it happen one second before? Maybe. Three and a half years before? Maybe. Seven years before? Maybe. Whatever. We don't know that yet. We haven't established that. So let's talk about the timing. That's the third step. That's the third step. And I think the best way to put it is that the rapture happens immediately prior to the day of the Lord. The rapture happens immediately prior to the day of the Lord. This is where we need to get a little bit into the nitty-gritty of 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. And as we talk about 1 Thessalonians 4, we know it's talking about the rapture. And I want to make an important clarification at this point. Sometimes people say, oh, you know, we're caught up with him in the clouds. And and sometimes we meet him in the air. And this kind of terminology describes a scene where you go out with the king and then you you bring him back. And so that's all that's happening. And that really syncs well with, say, a post-tribulational rapture. True. The language can't be used that way. And it has been used that way. No doubt about it. But here's what we want to ask. How did Paul, not just anybody, Paul use that language? Because Paul's the writer of Philippians. And so if we understand how Paul thinks about it through his own terms, about how he's used it elsewhere, we can understand how he intends, and that's what we want to know, how he intends under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit to discuss this issue. Do you remember Philippians 12 where Paul says, I know a guy. And you know the guy that he knows. In fact, as I think R.C. Sproul one time said, he shaved him that morning, you know. The, that guy is Paul, most likely. I know a guy. Yeah, Paul. You. And he says, who was caught up to heaven. Same word. Same word. Same root. Snatched up into heaven. And you say, why does that matter? Because, yes, you're right. People are right. Words can be used in all kinds of ways. No doubt about it. In all kinds of contexts. But this is the way Paul used it. And if we care about what Paul meant by it, it'd be nice to know what he was thinking when he meant by this term. Paul, in a sense, you could put it this way, in 2 Corinthians 12, kind of experienced a mini-rapture. That's how he intended it. And... His experience is not you just come down to say hello and bring somebody back down. It, it was to actually be with the Lord always. In fact, it's exactly the way 1 Thessalonians 4.17 puts it. And so in, in light of this, what we would articulate is that it's not exactly what post-tribulationists want to make out this scene to be. By Paul's intent and his usage and vocabulary, it's a little bit different. It's a little bit different. But let's not just make a clarification. Let's actually talk about what the text says. Not what it doesn't say, but what it does say. And here, we know 1 Thessalonians 4, 17 and following. It all is dealing with the resurrection. We understand that, being caught up with the Lord in the air. We understand the significance of that. But 
here's where it gets interesting. 1 Thessalonians 5.1, now concerning the times and the seasons, yes? The question is the times and the seasons of what? Yeah, times and seasons of my birthday, times and seasons of what? Well, in the immediate context, it's the times and seasons of the rapture, because that's what Paul has been talking about. And Paul says, you have no need that we would write to you, for you know very well that the day of the Lord comes like a what? Thief in the night. Notice Paul's answer. When are the times and the seasons of the rapture? It is no different than the timing of the what? The thief in the night and the day of the Lord. They're all the same thing. Did you catch that? They're all the same thing. When does the rapture happen? The same time that the day of the Lord what? Begins. The day of the Lord comes. Paul says they're all the same thing. And you might say, well, are you really sure that 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5 are so closely? How do you really, really know? Let me give you two reasons. One, look at 1 Thessalonians 4.1. We ask, we exhort you in the Lord Jesus that just as you receive from us how it is necessary for you to walk and to please God, that you would also walk that way, that you would abound still more, and that this is the will of God, your sanctification. And Paul now talks about what it means to be sanctified in purity, particularly. 9 of chapter 4, it says this, Now concerning brotherly love, we have no need to write to you. Does that sound a little bit familiar? We have no need to write to you. Now concerning brotherly love, that, that is the exact same language of 1 Thessalonians 1. Why does Paul repeat this? Because he's saying in 1 Thessalonians 4, I'm talking to you about holiness. I'm talking to you about purity, purity, sexual purity, even in love. Now concerning a specific subset of that, brotherly love, I have no need to write to you. He's continuing that conversation. He has connected verse 9 back with what is going on in verses 1 through 8. It's just a continuation of a subset of holy, true Love in sexual purity. And in the like way, Paul repeats the same formula in 1 Thessalonians 4.13 all the way through chapter 5, verse 1. Why? Because he's doing the exact same pattern again. He is saying, I'm talking now about the rapture. And just as he expanded that topic by saying, now concerning, so he will expand that topic in 1 Thessalonians 5.1 by saying, now concerning the times and seasons. Paul has set up a pattern he has set up a pattern that says, first four, one through 12 is one unit that has two parts and the parts are stitched together by this phrase, now concerning. In the same way, 1 Thessalonians 4.13 through chapter 5 is one unit with two parts stitched together by the phrase, now concerning. Now concerning. It's all one thing. It's all one thing. And that shows us that Paul's response about the rapture, about the day of the Lord, and connecting the two together, this is exactly what he intends grammatically. Now, there's another factor to it. It's very interesting. At the end of his discussion about the day of the Lord, he says this in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 10, that whether we are awake or we are asleep, we will live with him. And you say, well, what's so weird about that? Well, in the context... Paul has said those who sleep, sleep at night. That those who are asleep are morally laxed. That those who sleep are basically unbelievers who are worthy of the judgment of God. Now, why would he say, well, if you're awake or if you're asleep, you're okay. 
He has just said over and over, if you're asleep, you're not okay. Seems like an overt contradiction. But it's not a contradiction if you link it all the way back to what he talked about in 1 Thessalonians 4, that those who are asleep, those who are dead in Christ will rise up first. What Paul is talking about is whether you're awake because you're here on this life, you remain, and you're faithful to God, or whether acts, but you are what? You're dead. You're going to be just fine. But how would he make that connection unless the whole thing is connected together? The whole thing is one unit in Paul's mind. And he's tying the whole discussion together. Yeah, I know there's a chapter break there, but that wasn't put by there by Paul. He didn't write the nice letter five in chapter five, verse one. It's all one. And not only does this help us resolve a potential contradiction, which is good, of course, but for the sake of this argument, it reminds us, Paul, when he thinks about the day of the Lord, and when he thinks about the rapture in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, it's all one unit together. It's all one unit together. And what does Paul do here then? He says, you want to know the times and seasons of the rapture? It's really simple. It's just the same time when the day of the Lord comes like a thief in the night. That's what's happening. And that's, by the way, why the early church thought that Jesus could come at what? Any time. Because they just saw this and they said, well, that's what it says. And yeah, there's going to be a tribulation period too. They're just repeating what the Bible says. And we're just bringing out the implications of it. Now, this isn't the only place where you have this logic. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2 also discusses this. And it says this, We ask you, brothers, concerning or about the, the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering to him. Now, with that language of our gathering to him, that's rapture language. That's rapture language. And Paul, at this moment, exhorts his people to not be shaken, whether by word or epistle or whatever it may be, that the day of the Lord has already come. Now, here is what's interesting. Wait, Paul, you're talking you're talking about the Lord's coming, and immediately you also talk about, in the same breath, the day of the Lord coming. Why does he parallel all three? Because they are all actually what? Parallel. Did you see that? He's just using the same logic he used in 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5. When is the time and the seasons of the rapture? The same time as the what? The day of the Lord. So when you're talking about when is the rapture of the church in 2 Thessalonians 2, what are you going to respond with? The day of the Lord. Because why? They're all what? Parallel. They're all at the same time. They're all at the same instant. Now, that's the first thing we need to observe. 2 Thessalonians 2 confirms what we see in 1 Thessalonians 4 or 5. It's the exact same logic all over again. But here's something interesting, and this is an argument from silence, so let's be fair. But Paul, Thessalonians, stop panicking. You already know you're supposed to be going through the day of the Lord. What's the big deal? Like, you know this is supposed to happen. Why are you so upset? If the rapture happens after the day of the Lord commences, Paul should have said or could have said, it's a possibility, so... Why are you so bent out of shape? In fact, why are the Thessalonians bent out of shape if they believe that they're the day of the Lord? It doesn't make any sense. If this is what's supposed to happen, then it should happen. 
You never tell a child they skin their knee, it's bleeding, and they're screaming about it's bleeding. Well, that's crazy. That shouldn't happen. No, this is what happens when you skin your knee. It bleeds. We put a Band-Aid on it. It's over. It's done. Be calm. This is the fallen world. This is what happens. That's it. That's all you say. You don't just go into hysterics. It's only when something is unusual or when it's not supposed to happen. So if we are supposed to go to the day of the Lord, this chapter should have never been written. Because the reason that they would be in panic is because they actually believe this isn't supposed to what? Happen. That's the point of what is going on here. Now, that is an argument from silence, and we should actually get some clarity on it and some consistency on it as we look in the details. And we do need to make a clarification because people look at particularly verse 3 and they say, well, it hasn't come unless the apostasy comes first and the man of lawlessness is revealed. And when we instinctively read that, sometimes we read it like this way, that, okay, we're talking about the day of the Lord. We're talking about the rapture. We're talking about all these things. Well, what has to happen before those things happen is there's an apostasy and the man of lawlessness is revealed. Now notice, I switched the words. I didn't say that the apostasy comes first. I said that the apostasy comes, what, before. Now, first and before are not necessarily the same thing. Obviously, things that come first come before something else. No doubt about it. But they're not the same word. I'll give you an example. In fact, this is example is most apropos because it's by Paul himself in, in a parallel construction in 1 Thessalonians 4. And we are in what book right now? 2 Thessalonians. So this is very much at his own given time, his own style, even at that given moment that he is writing in and the whole frame of mind that he's in. 1 Thessalonians 4, it says this, the dead in Christ shall rise up First, now did you interpret that to mean that the dead in Christ will rise before the rapture? Is that what that means? That the dead in Christ will rise up before the rapture and then will be gathered to Christ in the air? Is that what that means? No, what does it mean? It means when the rapture happens, the first thing that's going to happen within it is what? The dead in Christ will rise up. It's not talking about before. It's not saying, well, when Christ comes before that, the dead in Christ will raise. What? No, 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 no. When he comes, the first thing that happens is what? The dead rise up. Then what will happen? We who are on the ground will be caught up with him in the air. It's talking about a sequence. This is exactly what is going on here. How do I know that the day of the Lord has come? Sequence number one. The day of the Lord has come when you see a great what? Apostasy. And after you see the great apostasy, who's going to show up? The Antichrist. That's what's going on there. This is not about what happens before the day of the Lord happens. This is not about what happens before the rapture happens. This is about what happens in the first steps of the day of the Lord. And you say, why does Paul have to talk about that? Because what he's telling the Thessalonians who think that they're in the day of the Lord. Okay, let me tell you the symptoms of what it's like to be in the day of the Lord. The first thing you're going to have as a symptom is you're going to see a great apostasy. Have you all apostatized? No. Okay, this is not the day of the Lord. Second son, you're going to see is an antichrist, and he's going to be sitting in the Jerusalem. Have you seen that yet? No. Not made the news yet. But, you know, news is slow. We don't have social media at that time, so, so we don't know, Paul. But maybe it hasn't happened yet. Okay, then you're not in the what? Day of the Lord. 
It's really that simple. It's really that simple. This is about precision, isn't it? It's about understanding what the word first in its grammatical context, per how Paul uses it in parallel passages. It is not about just going quickly over something. You've got to take it slow, which is why we have to be patient with one another, isn't it? Because you can't just rush through these things and just start throwing out passages and arguing. It takes time. It takes time. Be patient, be humbled, be precise. But all that to say is Paul is helping his own people understand, don't panic. You are not in the day of the Lord. These would be the first things you would see, and you don't see them. So you are not in the day of the Lord. And again, the reason they would panic is not because they would expect to be in the day of the Lord, but they would panic because they expect not to be there. They expect not to be there. And again, that just reaffirms the very logic that we've been talking about. So what we have been seeing in 2 Thessalonians and in 1 Thessalonians is that the day of the Lord, when does that happen? It happens when the rapture happens. Both of them happen at the same time. And that really is a pre-tribulational rapture because the rapture, in a sense, is the kickoff of the day of the Lord. That's what's going on here. This is not even mid-tribulational because Paul makes it clear that the rapture and the day of the Lord, which happen at the same time, only things within the day of the Lord are things like the great apostasy and even the revelation of the anti-Christ. At the same moment, the day of the Lord convenes and the day of the Lord can, can, uh, can includes all of those other items that I just mentioned, which means then that the rapture of the church is squarely outside of the tribulation period. This is not mid-trib. This is definitely not post-trib. It's definitely pre-trib. And there's a lot of things that now can support that. And I want to make sure that I end relatively on time. So we're going to go through these in there. So here's some consistencies that arise with this. For one, we've already talked about it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, the saints are with Christ when he comes. How do you get that? How, How are they already there? Well, It's because they were already raptured. It's consistent with that. It doesn't prove it beyond a shadow of a doubt, but it's consistent with that. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, it says this, that God raised from the dead Jesus, who will deliver us from the wrath to come. Who will deliver from that language of the wrath that is to come is a phrase in the Old Testament, in books like Zephaniah, in books like Joel, in books in the New Testament like Revelation that deal with the day of the Lord and the tribulation period. Of course, this culminates in hell and God's final wrath and his final judgment, but it is already being manifested in those passages in describing the day of the Lord. And here the text says that Jesus rescues us from that. He rescues us from such wrath on the day of the Lord. And it's not just because the term wrath is used in the Old Testament for these things that we can make such an association. Paul himself makes the association. Notice 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 9. 5 verse 9. In talking about the day of the Lord, what does Paul say? Because God has not appointed us unto wrath. He associates wrath the Lord, the wrath that he was talking about earlier. He himself links it in the context. And he also says this, God did not what? Appoint us to that. He did not appoint us to that. This deals well with the evidence of both grammar and of history and of Paul's own usage of the term within the same book in a parallel context. On top of that, 
Revelation 3.10. I think we're very familiar with this. The church of Philadelphia will be kept out of the tribulation. Revelation 3.10. And some people say, oh, you're just sticking too much on a preposition. You know, are you really sure about this? Okay, fine. Let's think about even the flow of the book of Revelation. And let me just ask you a very simple question. Do you think John knows how to say the word church? Do you think he knows how to say that word? Yeah. In fact, I think he said it about seven times in Revelation 2 and 3, because he talks about to the seven what? So John knows. He's got the vocab to know about the word church. It's not like he doesn't know that word. He forgot about it, and, and, and he just doesn't know how to use it. Well, isn't it weird then, or interesting, that in Revelation 4 through 19, he never talks about the church. He never talks about the church. It's always talking about Israel. Until you get to Revelation 19, where in heaven, John says, that the saints, and they were clothed in white, which is the righteous act of the saints. And it is blessed, the fact that the bride of Christ has made herself what? Ready. Then he talks about the church. You see, Revelation 3.10, like many parts of Revelation 2 and 3, they anticipate what is going to happen in the book of Revelation. There are encouragements to the church in light of what is going to happen in 4 and following. And in that regard, it's in front of our own eyes. You're kept out. The church is kept out of the tribulation period. And that's exactly what happens in Revelation 4. They were kept out. There's no mention of them until you actually see the scene shift back into heaven. And that's where they are. And that's where they are. Speaking of which, you remember, and we'll maybe talk about this in more detail in a second, but in Revelation, it says that the church is clothed in white, which are the righteous deeds, the righteous acts of the saints, the righteous acts of the saints. Now, having said that, where did the church get those white robes? Where, where did the church get that beautification, that ornamentation to be ready as the bride of Christ? And the answer is, they got it at the judgment seat of Christ. Now, here's a question, and this is the question of consistency. Again, question of consistency, and it's a consistency, as we'll see, of heaven and on earth. But in heaven, it's this. If you believe in a different scheme of when the rapture happens, how do you fit things like the church being rewarded and prepared so that with Christ in heaven in Revelation 19, just like the scene says, how do you fit that all in the chronology? If we just go up to meet him in the air and come straight back down like in a post-tribulational rapture, where's the judgment seat of Christ? Or maybe it's like drive through you know, like, rewarded, you know, and come back down. Maybe, but it just seems a little bit odd to fit that in. Furthermore, here's something also odd to fit in relative not only to heaven, but to earth. Do you remember us saying that in the order of the second coming, God returns and then he gathers people along the ground, yes? Because they could be scattered to the four, what? Corners of the earth. Okay. So just think logically. Even if we were gathered post-trib rapture kind of idea, then what would God have to actually do to us when we're coming down with him? He would have to shotgun us all over the earth. And you have to ask the question, so gathered in the first place only to be scattered and then regathered. Why not just leave us there? You know, for a lot, you know, it's only like five extra seconds of us just going, you know, all over the place. Why do that? It doesn't make a lot of sense. Yes, that actually doesn't happen the way it does and the way it's supposed to. So in sum, you could put it this way. There are 
ancillary details and and the fit of how things are portrayed in Scripture where the pre-tribulational rapture, which is articulated in passages like Revelation, 1 Thessalonians 4 and 5, 2 Thessalonians 2, they make the most sense. If you don't accept that, you're going to have to do weird gymnastics with all of the other things that the Bible clearly teach. Well, this isn't everything, and I even have this in my notes. This isn't everything and all the proofs and all the passages about the rapture. Well, this isn't even everything that I had even put about, about the proofs of the things about the rapture, much less the things that I plan not to talk to you about. There's so much data here. There's so much data here that tells you, hey, people do believe in a rapture. Everybody does. Second, it's not the same thing as the second coming. Paul says it. He claims it. He shows it by its content. And third, if you get into the details, you begin to see, wait a minute, Paul, he has clarity. He says, I'll tell you the nature of the rapture. The rapture happens when the day of the Lord what happens. And he gives that answer consistently. And he makes that parallel consistently. There is no wavering in his logic. And the book of Revelation affirms this. And all the other details also coincide with it. What we can show is this. You can figure this out. You can figure this out. It takes hard work. Sure. But you can figure this out. And furthermore, the biblical writers had clarity. Paul wasn't confused. When you give an answer the same way every single time, with the same logic, with even the same vocabulary and wording, you're not confused. Paul understood this doctrine very clearly. He expected us to do so as well. And that's what we have tried to do here. Now, you might say, okay, that's great, but so what? Like, what's the point of this? Is it just get out of jail free? I mean, is this about winning an argument? What's the purpose? And like I said, yeah. We don't just want to talk about proving something. We want to know its practicality. And in that way, we need to go over this kind of a second time, a second time to look at the practical purposes, why Paul and John and others wrote this to begin with. So from proof to practice. So if you're following along so far, we've got three Ps. One is preparation, and we talked about precision within that. Second is the proof, and we talked about the three-step proof. And now we're going to talk about the practicality, the practicality. And this is the third and final point. What I want to do is I want to walk through a variety of passages that we've already covered, but I want to show you why Paul was even talking about this in the first place. It wasn't just, hey, want to have an eschatological discussion? No, it was, there was a reason for it, and it was a reason to convict us and to give us hope and to change our lives. And the first two reasons then, and I need to go through this rapidly, the first two are from the book of Revelation from the book of Revelation itself. And we observed in the book of Revelation that in Revelation 2 and 3, John knows how to use the word church, but in 4 through 19, he doesn't use the word church, which, yes, demonstrates the reality of a rapture. But there's a reason for why it happened. Who does John talk about a lot in Revelation 4 and following? The nation of Israel, the 144,000, the witnesses, the, the city of Jerusalem, the temple, Israel, over and over and over and over again. Why? Why is there needing to be a rapture? Here's reason number one, to fulfill God's promises to Israel. That's what Revelation is reminding us, to fulfill God's promises to, revela- to, to Israel, to Israel. You see, Israel was granted many promises, 
God granted them a a distinctive role, but because of their sin at this current juncture, we are a temporary substitute, like a substitute teacher for Israel. But as long as we're here, Israel will not center and the focus and have their fulfillment. So what do you have to do to get them back on the center and focus and fulfillment? You got to remove the temporary substitute. You got to remove the church. And so that's exactly what's going on. Revelation just teaches that straight out. Otherwise, we'll always be here, and they'll never get what they're due. And that's exactly what Revelation shows. Israel does get their promises, both in judgment, but also in honor. They're the witnesses in 7 and 11. They have suffering, but they're protected in Revelation 12. And they have a massive conversion that we see in Revelation 7 and 14. Their promises will happen. You see, God has a reason for this. It's not just get out of jail free. It's so that he can be faithful to his people. And you say, well, it's not about me, so how is that practical? Well, hold on. Let's think about this for a second. First, we rejoice with those who what? Rejoice. We would be in sin not to, to say, well, if it doesn't help me out, I don't care. No. If it helps Israel out and they're God's people and he made promises to them, amen. I'm for this. I'm for this. Second, we should be in awe of God's wisdom and plan in, within this. And third, if we're thinking about practical purposes of this first thing, you should just worship God for such faithfulness, yes? You should worship God for such faithfulness. He really does not leave his people behind, and he has a plan to fulfill it all the way. Furthermore, that faithfulness for them is his faithfulness for us, which gets us to the second point. It's not just fulfillment for Israel, it's fulfillment for the church. It's fulfillment for the church. You say, how so? Well, remember when we're raptured, and remember in Revelation 19, it talks about us being clothed in white linen, which is the righteous acts of the saints, and we said that that's for the judgment seat of Christ. Do you remember all that? Well, why does he rapture us? To prepare us to be the bride of Christ. And what God has done is said, I will fulfill my promises for Israel, and two birds, one stone, yes? I will make sure that the church is all that it should be. All that it should be. By the way, by the way, now you can see why people were so frantic in 1 Thessalonians 4 about their loved ones who died and might miss the rapture. Why were they frantic? They're thinking they're going to miss what? They're going to miss out. Maybe a loophole in his plan where if you died before a certain time, you wouldn't be able to get your reward and be able to honor and be beautiful for the Savior that bought you. Maybe that's what's happening. Paul's like, relax. That's not. He's actually designed a whole event to make sure there are no loopholes and none of his children will be left behind and they will have every promise that he promised to them in the total fullness he had promised to them. That's God's brilliance. He's going to fulfill Israel. He's going to fulfill the church. Another point, third. 1 Corinthians 15, do you remember? Loud last trumpet, yes? Signals the end of one era into a new era. You see, the rapture, sometimes we think about it as, oh, this is a weird event. No, God always does big things to change up his plan. Not change up in the sense of alter it, but to show an advancement of it, to accelerate it. You say, really? Like what? Like sending his son so that one era of the law is ended and now you're under grace? That would be wouldn't it? How about the flood? That's pretty big. It's global. It's big. And in fact, the flood is a good analogy because you remember what our Lord says? He says, the end times will be like the times of Noah. He says that. And in fact, here's just something ancillary to think about. Was there a person removed from Noah's time before the disaster happened? Enoch. 
And so you say, oh, could there be a connection there? More on that at a different time. But in any case, the, the point is simply this. God does big things to change up his plan, not in the sense of altering it, but in advancing it, to accelerate it. And the rapture is one of those things that clearly demarcates it. That's why it's linked, after all, and paralleled with the beginning of the day of the Lord. Of course. That's why Paul gives it that way, because that's the mindset. You want to know the kickoff of the day of the Lord? It's the rapture. That's what it is. And you say, well, what's practical about that, besides the fact that that just totally makes sense? What's practical is this, that God has linked our hope, our security, our fulfillment, Israel's fulfillment, with one of the biggest events of all time. So you know it's certain, and that gets us to point number four. So we talked about the fulfillment of Israel, fulfillment of church, big time, end time event. Fourth is hope. Fourth is hope. See, this is all about resurrection, but it's not just about resurrection. It's about what the saints receive, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we talked about this. And, and here's so encouraging. God designed an event to ensure that believers, whether dead or alive, it doesn't matter, they will receive their hope. And their hope isn't just life from the dead. Amen and amen to that. Praise God for that. Their hope is to be made beautiful and glorious for their Savior. And no one of his children will miss out on that. And never miss out on that to any degree in that regard. Why? Because of what God has ordained with the rapture and when he's ordained it, which is before the tribulation so that the bema or the judgment seat can happen so that all of his children will be prepared for to honor the Lord Jesus Christ. That's what we have to look forward to. A full hope without compromise. Why? Because of how God designed his plan. How God designed his plan. And that gets us into point five, perspective. Second Thessalonians 2. Paul has to belabor some things. He first has to tell people, don't panic. You're not in the day of the Lord. Relax. But then he says then this. You know what you're in right now? He says, God is restraining. Do you remember that? He has put a restrainer there. This is perspective. Believers. You're never going to be in the day of the Lord. The church is never going to be in the day of the Lord. So let's not overdraw suffering. You will never know how hell can break out on earth. You will never know that. So let's not pretend it is. That's Paul's point. You live in a time of God's grace. You live in a time when things are restrained. You live in a time where things are under God's careful, sovereign hand to mitigate, not to maximize. And you might say, but it's still hard. Paul says, no one's denying that. But you can't ever think that God is against you. You can't ever think that you're under his wrath. You can't ever think that this is the worst of all possible situations. Why? Because if the rapture is true, and since it is true, you will never go through anything remotely close to that. And at a time like this, sometimes we just need to remember, yes, that that saying, it's never bad as it could be, that's not just an That is scriptural truth established by this doctrine, the intent of 2 Thessalonians 2 itself. And that's why Paul at the end says, don't grieve. If you grieve, without, don't grieve without hope. And also be steadfast and be what? Immovable at this time. Why? Because you know what God has in store for us. 
He has made a whole plan and established it with clarity to ensure that what is awaiting us is this glorious hope in the end, not just of an individual resurrection, but of a beautified bride forever to be with the Lord Jesus Christ who gave himself for us. That is what awaits us. That is what we look forward to. And therefore, that gives us perspective in this time. So, we began wondering, at the beginning of all of this, if the rapture could ever be defended. It got a bad rap. Is it fabrication or is it from Scripture? And here's what we learned. Scripture talks about it. Scripture talks about it. Given progressive revelation, talks about it a lot. When you're looking at the passages that deal with eschatology for the church, like Revelation or 1 Thessalonians or 1 Corinthians, which are some of the most major ones that deal with it, those are all the passages you have with the rapture. Whenever they could, wherever they could, they talked about it. They talked about it. And so rapture, it's not a crazy doctrine. It is clear in Scripture. It is parallel with the day of the Lord. We have seen that. And it is all of these things for reasons. And therefore, we learn some very important lessons. One is, just because it does hard doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Just because it's hard to understand or hard to get and you have to take some hard work to do it doesn't mean it doesn't exist. Sometimes we just think, hey, if it's not easy, it's not true. That's not true. And that was easy to say. That's all you need to know is that, yes, sometimes doctrines take hard work. That doesn't mean, that doesn't disqualify them from being true. The Bible expects us to study hard, and furthermore, there's no such thing as a pointless doctrine. God always had a reason for why he revealed what he revealed, and it is beautiful when you think about how God is so faithful. He will fulfill everything to his own people, Israel and church. He gives us hope. He gives us perspective. He establishes a very brilliant plan that he alone can come up with. Those are things to worship him for. Those are things even now that cause our hearts to have comfort and peace. And for this very reason, for this very reason, we need to then study the scriptures all the more, and we need to then live out this doctrine of the rapture. Thank you.